This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. With me today is Dr. Robert Scoggins, a preliminary and critical, a pulmonary, excuse me, and critical care physician with Kootenai Health in Idaho to discuss CMS's recent rule to include the treatment of sepsis in Medicare's value-based payment program. Dr. Scoggins, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Dr. Scoggins' bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, sepsis is generally defined as a life-threatening syndrome of a dysregulated response to infection complicated by organ dysfunction. Sepsis presents an enormous public health threat estimated at over 10 million annual deaths worldwide and growing. Per the CDC, there are approximately 1.7 million U.S. cases per year, accompanied by 270,000 deaths. Mortality varies uh, by type of sepsis. Various studies estimate that sepsis is present in 30 to 50 percent of hospitalizations that culminate in death. Sepsis is consistently in the top five of hospital case volumes and is the most expensive and resource-intensive medical inpatient uh, condition. Two-thirds of sepsis cases are paid for by Medicare. For these reasons, in its final 24 Medicare hospital inpatient rule published in August, this coming calendar year, CMS will add sepsis care and the measures termed SCP-1 to Medicare's value-based purchasing program under its safety domain, meaning Medicare inpatient hospital reimbursement will be paid based on adherence to meeting a multi-step treatment protocol focused on timely diagnosis and treatment. The protocol emphasis, emphasizes again early intervention with me again to discuss Medicare payment to improve sepsis is Dr. Richard Scoggins. Truly dedicated listeners of this podcast, I'll note, may recall 10 years ago, almost to the week, I interviewed Dr. Jim Palmer regarding heart rate variability as a measure or predictor of infection onset. So that is background. Let's get into this, um, uh, Robert, if we can. So let me start by um, asking about diagnosing sepsis. What explains why timely uh, sepsis diagnosis has been a problem for quite a long while? Well, the problem with sepsis is that uh, it's hard to diagnose because uh, patients come in with variable present presenting symptoms. They have um, uh, you know, they can come in with a variety of symptoms that are difficult to recognize in the emergency room, and over twenty percent of patients who come into emergency room are at risk for uh, the diagnosis of sepsis. And they can have fever and chills, and that can be a, a sign, but a lot of patients don't present with those, um, uh, what we call the telltale signs of an infection. And not all infections are sepsis. Only uh, actually a small uh, minority of true infections result in this dysregulated immune response. Okay, thank you. Um... So let's go on. So would you agree that CMS decided to move uh, this measure or protocol, which had been in the um, inpatient quality reporting, that they moved it to um, value-based uh, purchasing uh, program because of this uh, longstanding 
a problem in early um, a diagnosis? Yeah, it, it really forces hospitals to institute a program to recognize sepsis and then initiate treatment. We know that the recognition is hard, but it's also super important because that uh, the sooner you treat patients with antibiotics and fluids, the better their outcomes are. You get decreased length of stay, decreased morbidity and mortality in patients that you recognize up front. And by uh, forcing hospitals to really develop their sepsis programs, uh, the idea um, by incentivizing them with value-based purchasing that will decrease uh, those measures and be able to have better outcomes, but also decrease the cost of care in these patients long-term. Okay, thank you. Just to be more specific, so uh, this measure had been used in uh, Medicare Hospital in the inpatient quality reporting program since 2017. Um, mm-hmm. and, I, and I will add relative to diagnosis, I did see one study in 19 showed that use of this measure can reduce mortality 15%. Nevertheless, other studies showed that average SCP-1 compliance was only approximately 50%. And so it appears that CMS decided that they needed to mandate and tie to value-based performance payments. So let's go to this bundle. Um, now, I, I, I just spell it out, SCP-1. Maybe it's called SEP-1. Again, yep. it's actually... Yeah, usually we call it SEP-1 so, in the hospital. Okay. <laughs> thank you. More convenient. SEP-1 <laughs> is actually a bundle, as I noted, uh, certain patients per the bundle should get specific care in, if indicated within a specified time period. All right. I, I know this can get pretty in the weeds, but could you, just, for say, a, a lay person, can you just basically explain generally uh, what's required, step out what's required, and you don't need to get the um, CMS actually lays out within six hours, within three hours, et cetera. You don't need to uh, note those uh, hour limits. Yeah. Yeah, the basics of of step one criteria is that early recognition and getting once you recognize it, getting certain uh, things going in the treatment of the patient, such as antibiotics within the first three hours, a bolus of IV fluids within the first three hours, measuring a lactic acid, which is in uh, which will give you an idea of how sick the patient is when they walk in with sepsis. Um, so these are just the basic measures and there's other things within the SEP one that are considered standard of care, but the primary two things that you want to see happen with majority of these patients are early antibiotics because every hour you don't give antibiotics to a patient with sepsis who presents to the ED, their mortality rate increases by hour. And so that early of putting in processes that once you make that determination that you're getting those antibiotics in to the patient, um, also getting blood cultures and the IV fluids to help with um, management of the symptoms, but also with the diagnosis. Okay, thank you. I'm, I'm glad you noted the hours I actually had in my intro and I, I on the fly, edited out. Uh, the protocol, of course, emphasizes early intervention, and I noted each hour of delay before treatment, the risk of mortality increases roughly 8%. So that's substantial. Um substantial percent by hour. Uh, let me go to uh, the next question. So CMS in the proposed rule, uh, which was in May, the final rule was in August, but the final rule just said we're, we're going to um, uh, finalize what was proposed. So it's exactly what they noted in the proposed May rule. Uh, but in the proposed rule, they, they said that 
Over the years, they received comments about SEP1 because, again, it's already been in the inpatient quality reporting uh, program. Uh, the two concerns, moreover, since you mentioned antibiotics, was the potential overuse of antibiotics, and the second that they noted was reporting burden. Uh, can you address? And of course, U.S. healthcare has yeah. had had a long-standing problem with overuse of antibiotics, which of course is problematic. But well, what's your sense of these two uh, concerns? Well, I think that uh, overuse of antibiotics is definitely a concern, but these, again, are sick patients coming into an emergency room or emergency department. And and the key is, again, recognizing the right patients to get those antibiotics too, which is also the hardest thing. But having screening processes in place, um, and there are new technologies coming out that are um, uh, going to aid in the recognition of these patients. So giving those antibiotics to the right patients at the right time is really the the key um, to that. And then, um, you know, there's always been controversy uh, about SEP1 from the reporting standpoint. It is, it takes a lot of time, but, um, and there's a big component that's documentation that's put on by, that's a burden put on to both uh, nursing and physicians. And then um, uh, the, process at which you then monitor it. But we do that with a lot of things in the hospital. And so I think that these processes, hopefully in most places, are already in place. Um, with EMRs uh, these days, uh, I think that, and more focus on sepsis, I think that that burden will become less and more streamlined. Right. So just to, to note uh, CMS's rhetoric in the proposed rule, they, they thought that the burden associated with the data abstraction of the measures uh, will not uh, increase because uh, hospitals are already required to report the data on the measure under the hospital IQR program. And then per your last point, uh, CMS notes that in process, uh, CMS is working on developing a sepsis outcome electronic clinical quality measure. Uh, and, and if that's adopted, it would not be as burdensome on hospitals. Uh, let, let's go on. Um, th- this question is always um, one of my favorites, I guess. Uh, the sepsis measure con- the, the sepsis measure constitutes more Medicare performance tournament scoring, and that's the that's the formal phrase for this model of scoring, which means that hospitals that meet sep the sep one measure are paid a bonus. That's funded by reimbursement money deducted from underperforming hospitals. So it's zero sum. Uh, and CMS has done this on other programs. So, for example, if you fall in the top quartile, you get a bonus. And that's paid for by people not getting full reimbursement who are in the bottom quartile. And now CMS is going to continue with this formula. So my question, you can I'm sure you can guess where I'm going with this. Though CMS states it is moving uh, the measure to uh, VBP program, uh, are making it pay for performance for the reason, as they note in the proposed, to advance health equity. Is CMS really just further discriminating against hospitals serving poor communities? So what's and you know there's been a lot of research on this. In fact, there's a synthesis study out in 22, published in Frontiers in Public Health, and it concluded, and I'm quoting, left to the status quo, CMS CMS's hospital VBP is unlikely to reduce healthcare disparities and might even exacerbate them. And some people would say that uh, unlikely to reduce healthcare disparities is an overly generous interpretation. 
Yeah, I, I think that it definitely has the possibility of making the gap worse. Um, I think that, the, again, I think that the metrics and getting people on board with developing sepsis programs is very important. Um, uh, it would be, uh, and I think targeting those centers that are not performing well um, and encouraging them to do better is a great thing. I'm not sure that it, that just by doing value-based purchasing, that's going to be the way uh, and doing it in the method that they've decided that's going to necessarily work. Um, I think time will tell. Well, <laughs> a, right, yes, I think it's a difficult, it's a difficult problem um, that no, that uh, I don't know if there's a perfect answer. I would love to see more, um, more uh, resources available uh, to hospitals uh, especially those that are uh, under-resourced uh, mm-hmm. so that they can actually perform better and improve. I mean, that's usually the limitation uh, in improving sepsis right now is is really resources um, and having that sepsis coordinator and having the, the support and the processes in place to improve. And if you're at a center that doesn't have those resources and can't get them, uh, it's, it's going to be difficult. So you're, you're a pulmonary and critical care physician. So obviously I have to ask you uh, the similar or same question in context of your own world. What's your concern or, or your take relative to this starting next year in your healthcare world? Yeah. So I'm uh, the chair of our sepsis committee at my hospital and also the medical director of our sepsis program. Um, and so we've been working on step one compliance. I, I get a report every month um, and work closely with our sepsis coordinator uh, to really bring more awareness and education to our staff. Um, I can see the results when we're doing well um, with both step one compliance, but even more to the uh, not even just step one, but just more focus on the hospital and taking care of these patients. Um, and we can see improved outcomes. It's, it's really amazing. I've been in, I've had the opportunity to be involved in several uh, sepsis programs in different hospitals and initiating those sepsis programs, but also, uh, you know, doing uh, quality improvement projects in different sepsis programs. And it's amazing that when you do these things and you put that focus, how you can actually affect patient outcomes and uh, improve the care of patients. And really the whole reason we're doing all of this is really to take better care of patients. Um, I'm a big believer in that patient-centered care and things that we should be doing uh, in the hospital, uh, should be doing things to improve the patient care and not necessarily quality, um, you know, doing uh, quality initiatives just to do quality initiatives, but quality initiatives that improve patient outcomes. And I've seen that. Um, in doing this over the past 15 years of my career. Okay, thank you. Uh, let me go to, I, I have two other questions I'm f- in my mind. Let's just go with this one. You mentioned new technology for diagnosis. I know this is this is part of your interest. So generally, how, how are we progressing relative to technology as it relates to uh, earlier diagnosis? I will just say, if you want to go there, I just read a, a primer on AI, and I would recommend mm-hmm. this to listeners. It's by Lee Goldberg and Cohane, The AI Revolution in Medicine, published uh, this year. And I have to say, the more I learn about AI, 
if if half of this comes to fruition, uh, it'll be uh, as they say game changing. But let's just stick with uh, as I said. What 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 do you see um, coming down the road in technology relative to improving diagnosis? I think there's a lot of, of neat things. AI is one of them. I mean, we have these you know incredibly powerful EMRs that collect a lot of data and they can synthesize in using AI and uh, different algorithms. They can recognize patients both in the emergency department and in the hospital that are declining or meeting criteria for sepsis and alerting um, providers well before we would normally get alerted. Mm-hmm. And it can be things such as trends in vital signs, but also changes in labs. And as that mater- as that data gets input into the computer, um, system that they can then, you know, in the background that's running. And it's really cool. And there's a lot of neat uh, ideas going on with that. Uh, you know, the problem with that, though, is that the data's actually got into got to get into the system. Mm-hmm. And that usually seems to be an issue. Uh, although I think we're improving um, that, especially in the hospital. Um, but uh, getting that data, such as vital signs input and the lab tests and so that the um, algorithms can then utilize that data is probably one of our bigger barriers. Um, and in time, sometimes it takes more data and time to get um, th- than you really have, and you want to make that diagnosis earlier. Um, then there's different uh, lab tests that are coming out. We've relied classically on using things such as white blood cell count and lactic acid um, as uh, possible uh, you know, kind of uh, indicators of patients who are infected and how sick they are. Uh, and uh, the more that I've practiced, the more I've learned that those aren't really that great. Um, and so there's been a real push to get biomarkers, uh, both um, uh, cellular-based and transcriptional-based uh, markers uh, that are uh, better at diagnosing or recognizing sepsis before it becomes uh, uh, full-blown organ dysfunction and sepsis. So, and I think eventually adding those uh, those lab tests in with the AI and the data will make it uh, even more powerful in being able to do the recognition component mm-hmm. of sepsis, which is usually the biggest barrier that we find. Once we recognize sepsis, we're pretty good most of the time. We get antibiotics in um, and initiating treatment, but that recognition step is is rarely where we struggle in most uh, centers. Right. The phrase timeliness of care cannot be, I guess, over overstated or emphasized. I do want to ask this question based on your experience. Uh, you know the phrase, Medicare is the market maker. So the question is, I'm asking to speculate. Uh, now that Medicare has has um, uh, expanded its VBB program to include SEP1, value-based uh, purchasing program again, uh, what's your sense that other payers, commercial payers, uh, will begin to adopt a sepsis a value-based program? Well, I think, you know, I think working in the hospital and and being part of our sepsis committee, I I do interact with like our, our uh, billers uh, and coders. And uh, I think that the uh, insurance companies have definitely recognized that sepsis is an issue and um, they have, uh, uh, and there's a lot of um, denials that go on currently for sepsis. And a lot of that has to do with documentation and differences in the sepsis diagnosis. So I think that the insurers have definitely recognized it. 
I would like to see them also uh, get on board with doing more in helping or encouraging hospitals to, to, to treat patients with sepsis in a more timely fashion, in, in such as the SEP1 compliance, but even maybe go past that in helping, uh, like we were talking about earlier, help fund hospitals to, um, or encourage hospitals to put those programs in place that, that really are multidisciplinary and uh, can attack the problem. Most hospitals lose money um, on sepsis patients. Um, uh, you know, almost every sepsis patient that comes in the hospital, whether it's Medicare or an insured patient, just because of the cost of care is so high. Right. And, and largely because the length of stay is so long uh, in treating uh, sepsis patients. Let me just work in one final question. Uh, I probably should have started. I had it earlier. Um, I did note in the introduction uh, the mortality rate worldwide and significant also here in the U.S. and that more or less everywhere these the number of these infections are growing. What I'm, I'm sure there are innumerable reasons for this, but what's your sense of why we're seeing more sepsis infection? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I think well, one the population, especially here in the U.S., is getting older. Um, so it's a lot of Medicare patients, and we mm-hmm. have, you know we have uh, this older population. We also have people living longer with chronic diseases um, and immunotherapies uh, that are suppressing immune system. I mean, we've done a lot of amazing things with medicine, and and um, and so I think that that is contributing uh, some to it. I think also just uh, the growing population worldwide, the amount of worldwide travel the way infections can travel now. I think there's lots of reasons for um, increased infections and and probably changes into our immune system as well and how we're able to fight infections. Um, there's probably some, uh, we know that there's probably uh, genetic um, components to this and, uh, and with time, maybe we'll be able to identify those who are most risk of sepsis. But um, I think there's a lot of science to be done uh, over, you know, uh, to get answers to those questions. You're right. Uh, uh, aging population and comorbidities and uh, immunosuppressed, I think, uh, clearly are part of the problem. So with that, a quick overview, uh, Dr. Scoggins, thank you for this um, important subject, uh, sepsis. I will just say for the listener, the other quality metric in the final inpatient uh, 24 Medicare hospital rule uh, and feel free to make comment if you want, is that CMS is going to require uh, patient-reported outcome measures as it relates to total hip and total knee uh, replacement, uh, THA and TKA surgeries, uh, elective surgeries. Also, too, as part, and those measures will also, too, account relative uh, to uh, performance on those patient-reported measures will also, too, count uh, relative to um, uh, Medicare payment. So that's sort of the other um, uh, large quality improvement in the 24 rule. So with that, uh, Dr. Scoggins, again, I appreciate your time. Yeah, well, thank you very much. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.